It's your host, Kilo, and we are back for another episode of the regular podcast on the regular network. It's real. All right, so welcome back. I know I'm a little bit late with this week's episode, but I was taking time to compile some information. A lot of stuff was going on this week. Um, most of it is, you know, messy. I really don't feel like talking about it, but I will just give a brief overview of it. Before we get into anything, though, make sure you subscribe to the channel. Hit like, comment, share the videos, share the, the entire page, the channel, and um, make sure you hit the notification bell next to the subscribe button so that you can get notified anytime we release content on the platform. Again, we're trying to get the numbers up. We're on the road to 5,000 subscribers right now. You know, it's been a slow road, but we're getting there. We'll get there. You know what I mean? Um, let's get right into it. You know, some, one of the bigger topics that happened this week was the BET Hip Hop Awards. Um, and one of the biggest awards where conversation was started around was the Song of the Year Award. And that was won by Lotto for Big Energy. I feel like it might have made more sense to people if the Big Energy remix won but it didn't just the regular big energy song by lotto one and that caused a little bit of an uproar which was spearheaded by kodak black of pompano beach florida and he felt like super gremlin should have won the award and i feel like a lot of us feel the same way i, I haven't really even seen anybody who agreed with who bt gave the award to which was lotto and salute the lotto is no hate but everybody knows that super gremlin was a far bigger song and more impactful song this year than Big Energy. As good as Big Energy was, Super Gremlin is Super Gremlin. Even, it was so good that even you, Lotto, decided to do your own remix to the song. Like, that's how good of a song it was. Uh, and Kodak went on a little bit of a rant. You know, he was talking crazy. But this is what Kodak does. He was talking crazy. And for the most part, when Kodak goes on his rants on social media, a lot of people do not take his side. He, he says things that are not PC, politically correct. He says things that a lot of people are rubbed or are offended by. This time he said some offensive things, but he was so correct that people ignored that they didn't even care. You know, he was still offensive, but he was so right. His song was snubbed so bad that people pretty much overlooked the, the, the insults he threw at Mulatto. At, sorry, at Lotto, Big Lotto. Sorry, she changed her name, right? So I feel like this is just proof. And this is not proof because this has been around for a long, this has been happening for some years now. BET is really dropping the ball, really, when it comes to their award shows. Essentially, right now, what it's looking like is BET is just the blackface face version of the Grammys. And not to say that it's just a black award show. It's not a black award show. It's pretty much the Grammys with black people in charge. And, though, and they still have the same agenda as the people at the Grammys. That's what it feels like to me. They're still just giving the awards to the most visible or they're giving the awards to the people who fit whatever agenda they're pushing at that time. You know what I mean? And I feel like it's very evident. I feel like it's been evident for a few years now. And, and some of this stuff is not really making much sense. We don't and this is why a lot of people don't watch the BET Awards and why a lot of stars don't show up. It's because it doesn't feel like it's for us anymore at all. The, there was a time when 
when I was growing up and I started watching BET Awards when it first happened, probably like 2000, 2001, there was a time when all of the biggest black stars and entertainers were at the BET Awards. Like pretty much, I can't even think of, when, when I was growing up, I can't think of who wasn't showing up. Pretty much everybody was there. They used to have Michael Jackson used to be there, um, Whitney Houston, like everybody. Jay-Z, Beyonce, they all used to come. When it sold and they started to kind of be more agenda-based than music-based, you know, people stopped messing with it for the most part. So I think now what's going on is BET is very anti-street artists, right? And the street artists are the hottest, they're the biggest things going right now when it comes to rap, drill, trap, whatever you want to call it. They're the hottest people out right now. So for the street artists to not be shown love, it looks like BT is kind of shunning them and, and trying to stay away from them or outcast those, those guys. Now, I do understand the method of saying that we don't want to give light to anything that's negative on that level, but BT has a lot of negative stuff on the network and they still have a lot of street rappers up there, but they on the hip hop awards, they have the street rappers that are more corporate, that, that have separated themselves further and got more successful and gotten away from the streets. But if you want to be an accurate hip hop award show, you need to have what's actually going on at that moment. Not to say Glorilla, not to say Lotto, not to say that these people are not going on at right, right now, but it seems like you, you as, a street art, as those street artists have to have major significant connections in the corporate world with people who get down with the system to even get up there. And that's not to say that Yo Gotti has gotten down with the system, but he is, he has ingratiated himself with the larger corporate music industry. So of course, all of his artists, they get shown love up there, but that's not, they don't, they don't show a lot. Like there's no way to me, BT shouldn't be doing everything they need to do to make sure NBA Youngboy is at the award show. With the amount of music he drops, he should be in pretty much every category. With the amount of success he has, he should be winning multiple awards pretty much every year over the last four years at least. He's way too successful, but because of what comes with his name, y'all don't want to show him love. Be uh, Kodak Black also, one of the biggest artists out, but he, he has one of the biggest songs of the year, period, in all genres. And for some reason, he loses song of the year when he it's like he's the clear favorite and it really doesn't even make sense. Even the song that they chose to give the award to is probably fourth in the category. So I feel like BET is really dropping the ball, man. Y'all are not really showing no love to the up and coming New York drill people. Y'all didn't ever really show love to the Chicago drill scene like that. Um, a lot of the guys out of Florida coming up right now, like y'all are just completely dropping the ball on keeping up with the young people. When I was growing up watching BET Awards, it was always current. I, as a kid, I saw my favorite artists on the BET Awards. I didn't feel like, oh, these, this is just for old people. If you're a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old kid right now, pretty much nobody on the BET Awards is anybody that you listen to. Pretty much none of them, right? That's a problem. You can't, you can't be about the culture, but only be about the culture for a certain age group. The culture is vast and very broad in age range. So you gotta, you gotta be able to appeal to everybody from top to bottom. Again, when I was growing up, we as kids watched it, my grandmother watched it. There was stuff for all of us in one show. 
That's not the case now. And BT, y'all are not going to do it by having TikTok artists up there that people don't even know their full song. You got somebody up there who has a, a song that's viral for a 10 second clip and y'all have them up there performing a song. Like, what are y'all doing? It's way too much corporate foolishness going on. And y'all have to stop this, man. Y'all have to stop this. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to spend too much time on it, on that like that. Um, another big story that just came out within the last about two days, and today is Saturday, the 8th of October. Last two days, Draymond Green and Jordan Poole got into a situation in practice. And I guess people heard about it, but then TMZ did what TMZ does. TMZ is pretty much the Illuminati of California, right? They can do anything, it seems. But TMZ was able to get their hands on the video from practice footage of Draymond Green pretty much almost knocking out Jordan Poole. When I say almost knock out, I'm saying that Jordan Poole didn't, you know, fall on the ground sleep. He definitely got dropped from a punch from Draymond Green. So we can't hear the video, but what we see is Draymond Green is like on the sideline, over on the sideline. Jordan Poole is somewhere in the in the key, you know, in the post area. And Draymond Green is talking. They're kind of talking to each other from a distance. Then Draymond Green walks up to Jordan Poole, gets in his face. Jordan Poole pushes him. Draymond Green proceeds to punch him in the face rather hard, right? Jordan Poole's knees buckle. He falls up against the wall, slides down like it's a movie, like a BET movie or something. You know, he really rocked him with one hit. And the sports world is really... The, the NBA sports world is really in an uproar because some half the people are saying it was a weak, cowardly move. Why would he hit his teammate like that? Or it was a sucker punch or whatever. Then the other half is saying, if you push somebody, you need to be ready to fight. And that's my stance on it. Don't push anybody. If y'all are arguing, then keep it at words. If you feel like you want to escal escalate it, then do what Jordan Poole did. Push somebody. But if you don't want to fight, don't push a person. I know some people are like pushing and punching is not the same thing. Yes, it is. If you push somebody, you, you assaulted them. They can do whatever back to you they want. All right. Now, it's up to Draymond Green is going to have to deal with the consequences, of course. He's not about to get a – well, I don't know what he's about to get. I would imagine he's not getting a slap on the wrist for something like that, especially with the video getting out. Now, the Warriors kind of have to handle it harshly because there's a lot of people – that do not like what happened. People didn't like Draymond Green already anyway. Now they really don't like him, right? So I would say, man, the like me personally, I wouldn't have punched the guy, but I also wouldn't have pushed the guy that I'm arguing with. You know what I'm saying? Because once you once you initiate contact, you pretty much are saying you want to fight. I don't even know what world this means something else. And I mean, I feel like y'all are thinking, I don't even know what time period y'all are thinking about where there was a time where you could argue with somebody and then it escalate to pushing and then it just doesn't start a fight. I don't even know what world that is. I'm not from whatever world that is. That's reality TV world. I'm not from reality TV. Clearly Draymond Green is not from there either. They're not just about to push each other and yell at each other the whole time. Once you push somebody, you have started the fight. You started the fight. Getting in somebody's face is not a threat of violence. No matter how y'all, how many times y'all want to say it, people are allowed to get close to you. It's annoying 
We would like people to not do it, but it's not assault to get in somebody's face. Okay? So once you push them, you started the fight. Okay. That's enough for that, man. Y'all let me know what y'all think about that. I think what I think, you think what you think. Now, moving right along to brother Kanye West set the, set the internet on fire once again by going to Paris Fashion Week, Fashion Week in Paris. He and Candace Owens were wearing shirts. I like this, the name that um, Diddy gave her. He called her Karen Owens. I don't agree with that, but it's funny, though. Anyway, uh, Kanye and Candace Owens went to Paris Fashion Week in shirts that said white, white Lives Matter on the back. And it, like, pissed everybody off pretty much. Some people didn't care. It pissed some people off. And then other people said, y'all just don't understand the meaning. I really don't care what the meaning is. Uh, whatever Kanye is doing, it's on him at this point. I, I've been saying for the last decade or more that Kanye had a plan to infiltrate the system that he's trying to infiltrate and a lot more systems. And he's executing it right now. So everything he's doing, I think, is towards his plan, his original mission from like 15 years ago. But a lot of the stuff that he's doing is throwing people off. It's confusing. It's making them look cooned out. It's, it's, it looks crazy to people. I think it looks crazy also. But I still think that it goes towards him doing what he was trying to do, which I have, an, I have an idea what I think he's trying to do. I won't say it on here, but I have an idea. I think a lot of the stuff he does looks ridiculous, but I also think from what I think the plan is, everything he's doing is still in line with, with the possibilities, okay? So Kanye, you're going to look crazy. Hopefully you don't give up on what you got going on, but people are slandering you for rightfully so, okay? You're looking crazy out here. Then Kanye went at Diddy and Boosie because they made comments on the White Lives Matter shirt. Listen, man, this is all for show. Of course, nothing is, you know, it, it means nothing. Nothing is going to happen. There, there doesn't really need to be any deep dives on any of this foolishness. Now, I will say, I know some people are more into these hip-hop culture and uh, social media popular culture topics and everything like that. I'm into this stuff too, right? But I normally, I'm talking about it live on Twitter as this stuff is happening. So if y'all want to get my full opinions on some of this stuff, follow me at The Reg Podcast on, on Twitter. That's where I talk about it. Then I talk to Lucy about it. Like I feel like I'm talking about it all week when this stuff is going on. So that's why when I do the podcast, I don't spend like a whole lot of time on the pop culture stuff because I've been talking about it and I'm just sick of talking about some of this stuff over and over again. So that's my that's my take on all that pop culture stuff. Now, to get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, I wanna start out by saying, please do not be fooled by anything going on in this political landscape right now. A lot of people are pandering to black people, but they're not pandering to us in ways that'll actually help us. They're pandering to us by using celebrities. Once again, they love doing this. They pander to us by using celebrities. I can't, hold on. I can't believe y'all fell for that Bill Clinton shit. Excuse me. That Bill Clinton thing, that playing the saxophone back in the day. Like I was a little, I was an infant back then, a toddler. Y'all fell for, like y'all was calling that man a black president because he played the saxophone. Again, 
2022, please stop falling for these political games that make people think, that make black people think that some politician is actually doing anything on the federal level for black people. They never have anything for black people. They have policies for all people. And then they highlight, hey, black people, this is a thing for poor people. Y'all are poor. Put it together. They, they like try to do the, hey, put two and two together thing for us instead of just saying specifically, this thing is for black people. Because just because a black person is no longer poor does not mean they didn't struggle and suffer from the same racist, oppressive bullcrap that the rest of us had to go through. All right? So let's stop it. Beat black people, let's not fall for this foolishness. All right? Let's get right into it, man. There is, there is a lady named Dr. Dania Francis, and she got with a team, and I'll just read the name of the, of the people because it's important to shout them out. Derek Hamilton, Thomas Mitchell, Nathan Rosenberg, and Bryce Wilson Stuckey. They pretty much came together to do a study, and that study was to find out how much wealth the black American community as a whole has lost due to the loss of land in America in the 20th century. So the study is pretty much from looking at from 1920 up to 1997. So pretty much most of the 20th century, they wanted to look at how much land have black people lost and then what is the value of the land lost. Let's get into it. Now, this is a, I'll tell you where you can find it. At newrepublic.com, there, there's an article and the headline is how the government helped white Americans steal black farmland. It's a it's it's a nice it's a nice article. It's, I would say it's a long article if you read online articles. It's a pretty long article, but it's it's heavy. It's a lot of good stuff in there. There was a once thriving black middle middle class based on farm ownership, but during the 20th century, the USDA helped erase the source of wealth. So there's a book called Color of Law, right? And it talks about de facto segregation or de facto racism versus de jure racism de facto is kind of like it's kind of like it wasn't it wasn't the law doing it it was just random citizens out here being racist and it wasn't a structure it wasn't a system and it's kind of subjective and it's hard to prove right the de, de jure or i don't even know if i'm saying it right de jure i'm saying de jure de jure like d-e space j-u-r-e de jure racism is when it's pretty much codified, codified where there are laws that support it. There are laws that structurally enhance the racism, or there are laws that flat out are racist themselves and lawmakers that enforce laws in racist ways to where there's no way for black people to avoid the racism with the whole, with the whole de facto thing. It's like, okay, it's de facto racism. Like there's a neighborhood that you know, where the, the, the white homeowner won't sell you a house. Okay, just move to another neighborhood and you escape it, right? With the de jure, de jure racism, it has, you know, you, you can't, like black people can't get FHA loans, period, anywhere in the country. That's, it's, it's law, right? So that's the difference between the two. And this article here by Dania Francis shows you how the USDA use racist policies and 
and use racism in how they decided who to give loans and aid to when it came to farm ownership in the 20th century. This is this is very heavy, man. Let me let me I want to go through and read some of this stuff because uh man, it's 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 tough. The Office of Civil Rights at the Agriculture Department is located on the third floor of a building named after a white supremacist. The Jamie Witten Building, named in 1994, honors a member of Congress who started his career by eliminating a federal agency because it studies because its studies encouraged racial intermingling and it ended and ended it by referring to Mike Epsey, a black member of Congress and future Secretary of Agriculture, as a boy. Uh, Witten's prejudices were reflected in the policies he supported, floods of cash for wealthy white farmers and next to nothing for black farmers. Okay, so um, Jamie Witten is the guy who is pretty much the, he is the most important factor in the USDA's history of discrimination against black farmers, okay? According to this report, and they give you a lot of proof as to why, why they say this. In a typical year in the 1960s, writes James Cobb, he's a historian, <clears throat> Witten secured $23.5 million for, white, for wealthy farmers who made up 0.3% of his district and just $4 million for food, in food stamps for the 59% of his district that lived below the poverty line. This will go back to what we talked about with the Brett Favre situation in Mississippi, where he was given all of this money by these white men who were in charge of the, the state TANF funds in Mississippi, right? This is the same type of thing. This is the this is how they used to do it. And that's why I think the people running Mississippi were so appalled that they were getting in trouble and they were so, they don't feel like they should be in much trouble. They were just doing status quo in, uh, activity. This is what was going on pretty much everywhere in America. White people would, would be at the heads of state uh, of these states. A lot of federal money would come to their state and they would distribute to their friends, essentially, or people who the good old boys club. They would they would distribute that money to those people and give pennies or nickels to the rest of the state. That's how it's been working for a long time. So this Mississippi thing is much bigger than y'all than a lot of people realize. Okay, Jamie once explained to Governor George McGovern uh, to Senator George McGovern that if hunger was not a problem, it won't work. That's his wording. That was his wording. If hunger was not a problem, niggas won't work. That's a quote. YouTube, you don't demonetize me for that quote. I'm quoting Jamie Witten. Okay? This, I mean, this, this stuff is disgusting. Black farmers not only lost out on these massive subsidies, so pretty much like they, they were given all of the money set aside for farmers, period, in the, in the country. It was all going to white people, pretty much, right? Black farmers not only lost out on these massive subsidies, they have been effectively disenfranchised within the modern agricultural system. Under the conditions of savage oppression, black families emerged uh, early 1900s with almost 20 million acres of farmland. That was the most we ever had. So 20 million is the most black people in America have had, period. So we didn't continually get more and more and more as time went on. We have been losing it at a ridiculous rate. It says... Since the early 1900s, when we had 20 million acres, black people collectively, we are down to roughly, we have lost roughly 90% of that. It's disgusting uh, what's going on, man. 
So let, let's, let's get to this right here. Despite the scale of this deliberate state-sanctioned dispossession, no one has estimated how much black families have lost. So we always talk about, hey, we lost all this, all this land, but nobody has put a number on it until this article here, this study done by this great team that we just discussed earlier. The lost wealth and income from the land totals about $326 billion. $326 billion with a big B. Big bravo. That's a lot of money. And honestly, that doesn't account for, that doesn't include money that could have been made off of investments. That doesn't, that doesn't account for compound interest. That's only the land itself. That's how much money has been lost by black by the black community as a whole. And we got to be specific here because this was a time when they didn't allow black immigrants to come to America. So essentially all of that 20 million acres was 100% black American descendant of slave. Descent, uh, descendants of enslaved Americans, that 20 million acres was those people, the people who had been previously enslaved just 40 years earlier. Right? So you got to think about that. They had 20 million acres 40 years out of slavery that they owned. That's just the stuff we own. We also worked on a lot of white farms as well, right? And we'll get to that part. We'll get to what happened with that later, right? And so that's the type of wealth that black rural families had. So imagine if, if you had a rural black middle class that, was, that had that type of wealth still to this day what type of communities we could have built around, they wouldn't have been rural anymore. Those would have been cities now, big cities, and they would have been all over the South. By 1890, about 20% of black families, black farm families owned their land. And by 1910, that figure had reached 25%. Even as white creditors cheated them, white planters worked them ragged, white politicians disfranchised them, and white mobs targeted them with arson and lynchings, over 425,000 families were able to save up enough to purchase the two, two, uh, 20 million acres in the Jim Crow South. And we're really talking about the South because pretty much all the black farms were owned in 17 states. So it's pretty much the entire Southern part of the United States, right? So just think about that. This is, tw this is not just 20 million acres that you had to save up your money to get, right? This is 20 million acres that you had to save up when you were being paid less than everybody else, right? You were also being attacked by super racist white people. And you were also having lawmakers make it hard for you to even own anything. And they still got that much land. Okay, really what I, I just need y'all to go ahead and um, read this entire study because there's really a lot happening here. And um, it's way too interesting to just try to sum it up on a podcast. I, I did sum it up, but you you still have to go and get all the details. But this kind of leads me into something else that I had that I read, and everything else I'm about to talk about is related to this here. But I came across an article a, a couple months ago in August, late August that was pretty much talking about how the University of Texas school college system because Texas, all their colleges and universities part of one state system. And they so pretty much all the land that it has colleges on it, Texas, the state of Texas school system owns it, right? And it, it talked about how 
this school system is about to pass or very close to passing Harvard as the as the most well endowed schooling school system, University of Texas school system in the country. And it's all pretty much based on land, uh, based on oil produced from land, right? So you you have pretty you have Texas pretty much you have Texas schools pretty much because there's a lot more oil land in Texas that the school system doesn't own. They only own like small pieces of Texas. I said small pieces. It's two million acres, right? But uh, uh, Texas is humongous, so two million acres is you know small piece, and they have been they have been selling the oil from that land to these oil drillers for for decades and now with the cost of oil up so much right now they they're catching up to Harvard and how much they have in their endowment right now just think about this Texas is the south there were black people who owned land in the south but there's also oil fields in other parts of the south uh, oil under oil fields in other parts of the south as well so think about with that 20 million acres that black mostly that black people lost out on because we're down to four million acres now. With that amount of acres that we lost out on, how much of that, how much of that acreage could have been oil fields that we had right under our feet and that we no longer have access to? I know for I know for one, my family in Mississippi has some land. And I think a part of the land had some oil in it. So there's but this was from so so far back that I guess by the time a check got down to me, it'd be so small, there's no point in giving me one. But older family members have received checks from this land and my family still owns the land now. So that's in Mississippi. So imagine how many other families in Mississippi had land, but they weren't able to keep it. And that's millions of dollars or billions potentially of dollars in oil money that that family, that black family could have had that they no longer have access to because it was stolen from them through racist USDA policies, right? And that's just one example of what we're talking about here. You know, I saw people, I saw people attempting to, to bring up how the American Rescue Plan was supposed to help out black farmers or whatever, right? But it got halted from some policy, it got put on hold from some policy members who thought it or some white farmers who thought it was discriminatory and they thought it was, you know, racist. So Biden said, you know what? OK, we'll get rid of that and let's go forward with this um, American rescue plan. And I just want to read to y'all because this is all tied back to everything we're talking about when it comes to politics. EDA awards, and EDA is the uh, U.S. Economic Development Administration. The EDA awards $3 billion in American Rescue Plan funding for transformative economic development projects across the country, right? Now, the reason I want to talk about this, the American Rescue Plan, is because they used wording in here to find a way to be vague, but also be very specific in who they were targeting with the money that they had for people, right? We always say these policies that they have for black people, they're vague and they're really not vague. They're for everybody. So they're not for black people at all. It's for everybody and they hope black people will get some, right? So 
Pretty much what happened is in the American Rescue Plan, Congress allocated an unprecedented $3 billion to Economic Development Administration in, a, in supplemental one-time funding and required EDA to disperse all awards by September 30th, 2022 in order to meet the urgent needs of American communities. Today is uh, October 8th. And that sort of deadline was just a week ago. And it looks like it looks like the EDA was celebrating because they said they, they met the deadline. They awarded all $3 billion has gone out. It says, with deep, with deep gratitude to its partners, industry, and communities across the country, EDA is proud to share the, uh, that across 780 grants awarded through six innovative programs, EDA has completed $3 billion in transformational American Rescue Plan investments. So all that money that came from the Biden administration, they pretty much completed the mission and they gave all of it out, right? 780 grants, $3 billion worth. I just want to tell you, okay, the American Rescue Plan programs include, now remember I said they had some USDA policy that was supposed to help black farmers, but it got put on hold from white farmers, so it, so it just went away, right? So black people didn't get anything. Here we go. The EDA American Rescue Plan grant programs include Build Back Better Regional Challenge, the Good Jobs Challenge, or let me read how much was, was allocated for each initiative. Okay, the Build Back Better Regional Pro, uh, Challenge has a $1 billion awarded to 21 regional coalitions, each of which received $25 billion and $65 million to transform their regional economy by growing, growing an industry sector. Okay, that's the first program. Second program is Good Jobs Challenge. That's a $500 program, and it's for 32 industry-led workforce training partnerships. I actually think I was in one of those. I don't know, but I'm assuming. The third program, Economic Adjustment Assistance Program. That's also $500 million, right? Indigenous Communities Program is a $100 million program. Let me read this whole thing. Indigenous Communities Program, $100 million awarded to five 51 grantees to support economic development projects in indigenous communities for similar types of projects as described under economic adjustment assistance. Across all six American Rescue Plan programs, inclusive of the Indigenous Communities Program, EDA awarded a total of 127 grants, totaling $448 million to support indigenous communities. So not only did they have $100 million set aside for the indigenous community, that's the Native Americans, specifically, specifically for them, it's called Indigenous Communities Program, right? They gave them another $348 million from the other programs to... Okay, the fifth program, Travel, Tourism, and Outdoor Recreation Program. That's a $750 million program awarded to 185 grantees to help support regions hit hard by declines to these industries through projects to build new tourist attractions. So... They removed helping black people out specifically, but they're giving $750 million to recreation, museums, parks. And number six, statewide planning research and networks. That's $1 million planning grants go to each 
of the 59 U.S. states and territories and 31 million to 14 research and networks, uh, research and networks grantees. Okay. So, the our government, who specifically has been telling black people they can't do anything directly for us, and Kamala Harris saying, no, I'm not doing anything just for black people. So I'm not going to sit here and say, I'm going to do something that's only going to benefit black people. No. Let's really be clear about that. Has figured out a way to do things just for Native Americans, and nobody else is allowed to even touch it. And not only that, some of the money that was allocated to other things, they even gave a very large percentage of it to Native Americans as well on top of the set-asides for the Native Americans. Okay, so if there's, on, there's only six programs for this, for this American Rescue Plan, and one of them was for just one group. Let me, let me tell you something about the Build Back Better. So Build Back Better is like the slogan that they were using in this Biden campaign, right? And it clearly tricked a few people. Part of that money went to $300 million coal communities commitment. Now, remember I told you, Build Back Better, the Build Back Better regional challenge was a $1 billion program, right? They gave 300 million, they had set aside 300 million of it for coal communities. Let me tell you which communities are coal communities. There's only a few of them. Coal communities are in Alaska, New York, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, in West Virginia. Not the entire state, but small communities in those states have coal mines, right? And as you can imagine, those are rural white towns. There's no big cities that are built around coal, right? These are super rural white cities. <clears throat> I want to read some of this, and you'll see why I'm bringing up coal in a minute, right? The U.S. Economic Development Administration's Coal Communities Commitment was designed to allocate 300 million of its 3 billion American Rescue Plan appropriation, specifically with 200 million from the Economic Adjustment Assistance Program and 100 million from the Build Back Better Regional Challenge to support coal communities as they recover from the pandemic to help them create new jobs and expand opportunities for the businesses and people there. As a result of robust demand, EDA has significantly exceeded commit this commitment, allocating $551.8 million of funding to coal communities across its six American Rescue Plan programs. This funding includes 208 million and 89 projects and 242 million across nine. Yo, I don't even want, like, this is really kind of disgusting a little bit. Now, I just told y'all, there's no big cities built around coal communities. Coal communities are rural, white towns. There's no, there's no, have you ever heard of, not, don't let me speak for it. You tell me, have you ever heard of a black town where it's full of coal miners? Just, this is just what we do. I know some black cities that are still mill towns. I know some black cities that are fishing towns, you know, boats, uh, you know, all that type of stuff. I know some black cities that are like good truckers towns where a lot of truckers live out of. I don't know any, any y'all tell me again, I don't know any black towns that are built around the coal industry. Okay. 
The reason this is disgusting and the reason that it's important is because our government knows how to target people when they want to target people. They didn't have to say this is for white rural people. They said it's for coal communities. When they say coal communities, they know who lives in coal communities because they just know, right? So when you give, when you allocate $300 million for coal communities, and then you spend another $250 million on top of what you already allocated specifically for them, let's think about this again. The entire program is $3 billion. They spent one-sixth of that on rural white cities. These are not cities with skyscrapers that need a bunch of money. These are not cities with a million cars on the road that need new roads. These are rural towns with probably two gas stations and a McDonald's. That's the type of places, with, and they got a bunch of diners, probably no hotels. These are the type of places coal, coal mines are at, right? Bunch of rural in the mountains places. They don't have anything there, right? And they, and they, not only did they think they needed 10% of the entire budget, they thought that they needed another 200 million on top of that. I need somebody to help me understand why we let stuff like this go past. And then when black people specifically, when black people, black Americans ask for things to be allocated specifically for us, like the, the black people that we have in leadership positions tell us to shut up and they argue against us. Well, we're only using, we're only using examples from other people on how you should get things specifically for you and your community. Why is it a problem when we ask for it? Like I just said, they spent 16% of this entire American rescue plan on six rural areas in on um rural areas in five states. Alaska, New York, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and West, West Virginia. Rural white areas got 16% of this money. Again, I bring it up to say they know how to target people when they want to target people. They even know how to use wording that targets people that doesn't have to say a race in the wording. Because if you want to, you know how you could target black people without saying black people? You don't, you damn sure don't say poor. That's not how you target black people because there's a lot of poor everybody. So you don't, they need to stop doing that. And then you need to stop saying, okay, we'll target black people without saying black people. So what we'll do is we will lower crack sentences. You don't target black people by lowering crack sentences. Most black people have never been to jail for crack. Just because there was a lot of black people that went to jail for crack, most of them are out of jail, first of all. Secondly, most black people by far, the majority, have never been locked up for a crack offense. So again, that does not target black people. Right? That's not how you help black people. There's ways to target us if you're so scared to use the terms black American. I prefer just using the term black American. But if you don't want to do that, you can target us very easily. You can say, you, you can figure out what's common between Atlanta, D.C., um, Chicago, Detroit, Memphis. What's the common thread between those cities that 
is not just black Americans. Find a common thread and then target that thing. Because that's what you did with these coal communities. You found a common thread between all these rural white people. And then you just say, okay, let's use coal. And you did it. Now, that's enough of my ranting, man. I just gave y'all a good 30, 30 minutes on this alone because I feel like it's very important. I want y'all to go do your research on this. I want you to I want you to learn about what's happening out here when it comes to when it comes to how our polit politicians are giving us bullcrap symbology and they're giving other people real things that they can build families and build wealth with. Okay? To spend 16% of this transform First of all, I'm sorry, I got to go backwards a little bit. First of all, I would bet most of those areas the, the, where this coal thing is at, I bet most of those areas didn't even vote for Biden. Just think about that. The American Rescue Plan is Biden's plan. His post-pandemic, I want to rebuild the country back better. 16% of that money went to people who didn't even vote for this man. That should tell you that they are race first. They are not politics first. They are not anything else first. They're not sexual identity first. They are not class first. They are race first. They don't care who you voted for. You're white. They're going to take care of you. That's all I got for y'all, man. Make sure you subscribe to the channel. Peace out.